Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. There are very few true originals in the arts. For an artist, a writer, a filmmaker, or a sculptor, it is rare to find a creator whose stamp is so distinctive that his or her authorship is evident at a glance. Whether painting with words or with oils, the canvas is a mirror to the artist and to the consumer of that art as well. Of those rare creators, a tiny percentage of them are equally gifted in many of the arts. And our guest today is one of that small group of one-of-a-kind creators with an indelible signature. Since our conversation with Stephen King, by far our most requested guest is Clive Barker. My first exposure to his work was when Cynthia gave me one of his books of blood, volume four to be precise, for Christmas, and it was emblazoned with a quote from King himself, I have seen the future of horror, and his name is Clive Barker. Boy, did Steve know what he was talking about. Clive has established himself not only as a brilliant and original author, but is an equally accomplished painter and filmmaker. I first met Clive when we were both represented by the same agency, and that agency held a party to introduce him to the American film industry, and we have been friends and worked together several times ever since. I'm excited that we're finally able to have him on postmortem to share his unique talents and insights with all of us. Now available for pre-order from Severin Films the worldwide premiere of the unrated director's cut of Gabe Bartolosa's Skinned Deep, the insane directorial debut of the Frankenhooker brain damage effects artist, which Film Threat calls Texas Chainsaw Massacre meets brain damage. Scanned in 2K from the negative and featuring never-before-seen gore with a host of exclusive special features. Also, the Blu-ray premiere of the director's cut of the grim 1970s Richard Speck story, Born for Hell, scanned from a recently unearthed 35mm protection print. Packed with special features, including testimonies on Speck from filmmakers Gary Sherman, John McNaughton, artist Joe Coleman, and Once Upon a Crime podcaster Esther Ludlow. Plus, the worldwide Blu-ray premiere of the 1980s Canucksploitation shocker Siege, scanned in 2K from the original negative of both the theatrical and extended cuts. Visit www.severin-films.com. That's www.severin-films.com. Clive, thank you so much for joining us. You are so welcome. It's a pity we can't do this in the flesh, but one day this pandemic will go away and we will actually shake hands again. 
That will be nice. And speaking of, in nice. The, speaking of in the flesh, that was one of the things we worked on together that did not <laughs> ever happen. Yeah, it was. We've had a bunch of things that have happened, but we've had a couple of interesting ones that never happened. I was remembering, thinking about us going to talk. I remember The Mummy for Universal yes. uh, way back. We had a, a blast of a time working in that hotel room in London. Do you remember? I remember very well. I was at yeah. Brown's Hotel and your flat right. was not far away. I would walk over to you with pages every yep. day that I'd written yep. the previous day and we'd go over them page by page. It was one of the most exciting things I've ever done. It was fun. Was it? Was I in that Wimpole Street house at the big at that time with the the big the big rooms? Was I was I within walking distance of Brown? You you were indeed the yeah. Baron of Wimpole Street. Yeah, you go. <laughs> there you go. Actually, well, I want to start early. I want to start yeah. early. I I want to I want to find out about your experience when you were three years old. You saw Leo Valentin plunge mm -hmm. to his death, and it had a really indeed deep effect on you. Tell me about that experience. Okay, I'll try and keep this short, though it's actually, it's a, it's, it's a complicated story. Leo Valentin was a bird man. He was, his performance was to, to jump out of planes at great height and, and, and on wings made of balsa wood and cloth would imitate, I suppose, Icarus, as it turned out. Um, uh, circle around on these uh, artificial wings and at a certain point when it was safer you pull the parachute and uh, drift to the ground so it was the last performance he was ever going to give and it was in Liverpool it was a speak airport which is the local airport in, in Liverpool my hometown my home city uh, and I was three it was uh, high summer and uh, uh, very very hot and we had got in one car, the two families in one car, my, my aunt, my uncle, my dad, my mom, me and my cousin, Philip, uh, who was younger than I. And we got into this very stuffy little Morris Minor and we drove not to the airport itself because we didn't have enough money to get into the airport to watch this show. We had to wait outside, as it were, at the limits of the airport, the, the fence, the boundary, uh, which happened to be... Uh, a small road, barely a road, frankly, a track, uh, and on the other side of which was the airport, and directly opposing a huge cornfield. This is all relevant detail for what's about to happen. So mm -hmm. we all get out and we watch this tiny little plane, because it was a, probably a, a two-man plane or something like that, way, way up. And, you know, I was three. I didn't really know what was going on. Uh, I knew I was to keep watching the plane which I did, which is a very, very barely audible drone. It was August, it was very hot. And even the crowd that was actually in the airport, and there were a lot of people in the airport at the, at the air show, were all very quiet watching this event. So we watch and we watch. And gradually I get the idea, even at three, I get the idea, oh, there's a guy up there <laughs> and he's coming down. And I didn't get the bit about the wings at all. <laughs> but my but my mum, um my my auntie Brenda, uh her sister, uh did. Uh they they seemed to notice before anybody else that something had gone wrong. Oh, and it had. Uh Leo Valentin, uh as his last performance, was really gonna give his last performance. He was 
an accident happened. His his uh, his wings had caught on the superstructure of the airplane and basically they smashed. Now that wouldn't have been a problem if he just pulled the uh, parachute, you know, pulled the cord, and he could have drifted down. He did pull the cord, and the trashed uh, wings uh, caught in the in, in the parachute, and it failed to open. Uh, it candled, as they as a parachutist would say, it ju it just failed to open. And what my my auntie Brenda and my mum realised was that he was falling. Oh my God! And he was falling. I think it's a uh, 182 miles an hour, 128 miles an hour is the fastest you oh, can possibly fall. Uh, and I guess he was probably falling pretty much at that speed uh, and getting bigger and bigger. And now panic, there's four adults, uh, two, two, you know, two wives, two husbands, and panic spreads amongst the, the adults. And I remember this probably more clearly than anything else, that my mom began to shriek. And she was not a shrieker. <laughs> my mom <laughs> was Italian. She was very well. They were both Italians. She and both sisters. And uh, but the panic stepped in. And what I didn't realize was that they understood that his trajectory was going to deliver them very close, deliver him very close to us. Oh. And uh, the closer he got, the bigger he got. Uh, the more close they realized he was going to fall. Now I have to uh, sort of pass the, the pass the narrative over to my father's memory of this because, for me, I was bundled into a car with, by two very very panicked ladies. Uh, my my little cousin Philip was bawling. Uh, it was a hot little car. I didn't want to get into it. I wanted to see what all the trouble was about, and I started to cry. Philip was crying. Probably <laughs> Auntie Brenda and my mother were crying, mm -hmm. and. And my father saw him hit the ground about 10 yards from where we were wow. in the field. And he was the first to get to the body. Uh, very, my father and I had a, a difficult relationship in, 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 some, in some places. He was not very forthcoming where I was concerned. But towards the end of his life, I could not help but ask him what was what happened that day? Uh, I don't know how old I was. I was probably, you know, it, it, I, I was certainly in my 40s or 50s when I asked him this question. So I'd, it had been 40 years since it had happened at the very least. And I didn't really expect him to have much memory of it, but he did. And he had a very clear memory, a very eloquent memory. My dad didn't speak elegiacally. That wasn't his style. He was very direct, pragmatic, uh, very loving and and uh, intense man, Irish, and he he said, "Well, there was no blood that we could see." He said he was face down, and his arms were spread, and the bits of his wings, which were still attached, looked like birds' wings. So the image I had, and I asked him, I asked my dad that if I got the right image, was that he with his uh, with his brother-in-law, Phil, uh, Philip, uh, Brenda's husband, uh, Jim, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Brenda's husband, approached through the grass. And Dad said, I thought this was eloquent, he said, we didn't know where he was until we saw his shape. And the shape was the shape that was carved into the corn 
by the shame of his fallen body. Oh, my God. It was August, so the corn was at full height. It was close to harvest, yeah? So you have, I don't know how, 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 tall, is, how tall is corn, I don't know, four feet of, of, of bright yellow corn, and somewhere in there, the shape of a man-bird carved into the corn by the death of Leo Valentin. My God. Well, you were three years old and confronted with mortality for the first time in a way that no three-year-old should ever. Yeah, I suppose so. I didn't, I didn't see the body. I didn't. And so that image comes from the one, I think the one essay, which has been written about him uh, that I've read. About, and also, and more importantly, my, my own dad's report of this. Uh, they did move him. They did turn him over. I don't think they had any expectation of finding him alive, but who knows? Uh, and he said there was some blood on on his on his face, and and but he wa he wasn't broken. He it was the way my father said. Wow. Now who knows what had happened internally to the poor guy? Uh, it was it was sad that it was his last show that he was retiring after uh, uh, many many years. Yeah. yeah. It was an extraordinary thing. It was one of the uh, one of the three most important encounters, if you will, mythical encounters. It wasn't truly mythical, but it felt mythical. Uh, that uh, it, it entered my subconscious, conscious, and it stayed with me, un, unspoken, unquestioned for a long time, to the point where I wasn't even sure I'd actually seen it. Mm. And it certainly seems to have had an effect on the direction that your work took as yeah, a writer and as an artist. For sure. And there are birdmen all over my paintings yes. and drawings, including uh, drawings that I made before I'd even brought this into my conscious uh, brain. And I, it took me a little while to figure out, oh, yeah, this did happen. I can probably research this. Now, this is all before there was Internet. I couldn't put in, you know, speak airport, uh, you know, 1955 right. uh, onto, onto Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> but uh, we did find, or I found a book about Liverpool, uh, maybe called Liverpool Days. It had a, a short essay about this event. And, uh, uh, you know, the opening of the Proust novel, uh, you know, the memory comes with a uh, Madeline, which is a small biscuit dipped in tea. He <laughs> takes the Madeline, he bites into it, and his past comes swimming back to him because of the recognition of this taste. So when the book made mention of the events, that it had been August, that it had been hot, that, that, that the sky had been absolutely cloudless, and that this little plane had gone up into the air and out of it had tumbled a man who was about to die. All of that then came flooding back. And, and uh, there was a certain recognition looking back over my work that I realized I'd been drawing him for a very long time. Amazing. Now, you're, although you're a very gifted and accomplished painter, you didn't really start painting seriously until you were 40 years old. I, I got into art school, <laughs> and my, my this is this is uh, when I was eighteen, leaving uh, leaving Quarry Bank, and I went to to art school. I, I got into art school, and my mother and father were appalled, <laughs> and they said, <laughs> "But you're you're you you're smarter than that. You don't want to be a painter." Well, your and mother I, was a painter, right? 
my mother and father were very fine artists, but oh, they both were. Of them. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, my 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 father, in, in my uh, in in my father's collectibles, as it were, and now I think in the hands of my my own brother, uh, was a, a sketchbook that he did during the war. He was in Mauritius uh, during the war. Uh, I'm looking right now at a photograph of him uh, on his 18th birthday when he was dressed in his sailor's uniform and was about to, to go out to Mauritius. Uh, he'd never left Liverpool at that point. He'd never once stepped out of the city of Liverpool. Wow. So it must have been an incredible journey for him to get on a boat and go all the way over to Africa, you know? Right. Uh, so he 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 was a... a, a he, he had lots of stories to tell, I should say. And I hope we get on to lots more, but they had uh, different ta- talents as artists. My mother was a, was a, a representational landscape artist. Uh-huh. My dad was a cartoonist. But really? when we found the war, war drawings, they were beautiful portraits of beautiful, beautiful women from, from that period. I remember a beautiful drawing of Rita Hayworth, for instance, and another one of Eisenhower, who of course was was the leading the Allies at that point. It was right. a it was a, a glimpse back into a period. You know, 1945, the war finishes. I was born in 52, so there was a, a seven year gap, which doesn't seem like very long now, does it? Seven years. No. I mean, yeah, to think that Hitler was alive seven years before I was born. Yeah. See, well, you see, and I are about the same age. That's now. right. Yeah, and yeah. And our fathers, uh, our fathers both were accomplished artists. My dad never was able to make a living at it, and I think I suspect that's the same with your dad. As Absolutely well. true. Absolutely, they were both passionate uh, amateurs, uh, but uh, they were very good at it. They, they also, I, perhaps their experience was they never made any money from it, so they looked at their son who was sort of. Uh, eager to get into art school. And mm-hmm. so the idea I was going to do a year in Liverpool art school, and then I was going to go to the, to the Royal Art School in London, the Royal School of Art. Right. And, and you know, that was my dream. But uh, did, it, did you it shift interests? You shifted interests into theater, though, at that age, didn't well, you? Well, I'd been doing theater before I went to, to university. And so I ended up going to university on behalf of my mother and father. They said, listen, please go study something useful. <laughs> so I studied philosophy. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but I did philosophy in English and I did three years. And I said, you've got to promise me you never ask anything of me again after this. I'm, I'm doing this for you and I'm putting my art uh, studies away for a while. And it turned out that I put them away for longer than I intended. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was over here in England, in, uh, in America and uh, had the space, frankly, uh, to, to, to paint uh, at the scale I wanted to. I built a studio for myself in the house I used to own next door. And uh, uh, there was a three-story space and it was my dream space. It was my, the studio of my dreams. And there I was able to paint, you know, I think one of the paintings is 25 feet long. Yes. Uh, oh, you, it's you, 
I yeah. have seen that. It is yeah. so beautiful. I mean, your Thank house you. is a, gar a gallery of astounding, original, fantastic art. Thank you. That's kind. You, you know, you know, my inspiration for it was Holland Ellison's house. Did you ever go to Holland's place? I certainly did. Harlan you, and Ellison land. Yes. Remember? Yeah, exactly. You remember all the paintings? I, I, he had such an incredible collection of fantastic paintings yeah. that were, you know, classics with the colors of weird tales and all, all that wonderful 30s, 40s, 50s stuff. And I think he probably bought that stuff for a song because nobody wanted that kind of painting back then. No, nobody wanted cartoon illustrations. That's right. That's true. They yeah. wanted fine art without yeah. realizing what is finer than Bernie Wright's and originals. Yes, or exactly. Now, and I, yeah, we're looking at the generation before Bernie, aren't we? We're looking at the generation before Jack Kirby. Right. And, and, and you know, Holland had had the, the, the taste to buy hundreds, I would guess, of, uh, of, of such paintings and had hung them all over his house. Did he ever show you his bomb-proof house? Or bomb-proof space, I should say? Um, I did not go into his bomb shelter, but I do know that you had to go through a hobbit door to get into That's absolutely I, right. I, I went into that room there. And behind the it was a, was, a, was, a, was a locked room, which he said would sort, would survive, I don't know, three atom bombs or something. <laughs> and this is very Harlan, right? You know? Yes, I don't uh, know that I'd want to survive after three atom bombs. Well, that, that may be true, just saying hello to the cockroaches when you get out. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was, uh, it was an incredible room because in there he had the, 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 the books that he had collected over the years, which, and I've got this too, I don't have a bomb-proof room, but I've got these books, the books <laughs> that I want to survive the apocalypse, the right. books which I feel uh, bespeak our culture. Uh, and obviously being me, they tend to be fantastic books, horror books, science fiction books, fantasy books. But I think by and large, those genres even now are less respected than what we yeah. likely call literary fiction, yes? Right. The fact that there is a, a separation between literary fiction and popular fiction right. is kind of astonishing to me. It is, but it's still going on. I mean, you look at uh, the pages of the New York Times uh, Literary Review or basically any quote-unquote serious literary review, when you come out with a book, and you know this just as much as I do, you come out with a book trying to get a review from one of those uh, magazines or, or, or newspapers is very, very hard. Uh, mm -hmm. I've written, I don't know, 45 books or whatever. And I see I've had two reviews in the New York Times. Two uh, reviews, really? And you are, yeah. you know, at the forefront, not just of our genre, but of fantastic fiction in general. Yeah, I um, just don't think they think it's serious fiction. Mick, right. I really don't think so. I think what you said is absolutely right. They, there is a, there's an inbuilt, uh, I almost want to say condescension, oh, yeah. uh, that if you use your imagination, uh, probably you're just, I think it's even in the, I think this, uh, this problem is even in the word fantasy. Yeah, if you it's say, an immature genre. It, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it isn't. No, I think uh, the greatest exercises of the creative mind go into fantastic fiction and, and film. Fantastic, and most of Shakespeare is fantastic fiction. Right. There are ghosts in every single play. 
In other words, you, you, lit, literary fiction, Shakespeare cannot be more literary than Shakespeare. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it gets as good as, that's about as good as literary fiction gets. Yeah. Uh, but it's filled with ghosts and prophecies and terrible acts of murder and, and you know, all the stuff of which horror and science fiction and fantasy are built. And it's been a lifelong interest of yours. Um, and even when you were pursuing life as an actor and playwright mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. theater, but mm -hmm. your first really big success was as an author with the Books of Blood. Tell me yeah. about how that transition from Liverpudlian, you know, coming from the hometown of the Beatles, sure. and, uh, you know, pursuing theater and not pursuing your art, but then starting to type and typing stories. And then the god of all horror fiction, Stephen King. Yes. Uh, he knights you. Unbelievable. And I've so I want to hear about how that changed your life. Sure. No problems. It's a, it's a, yeah. First thing to say is I was born on the corner of Penny Lane, which is a Beatles song. Right. And uh, there's a mention of a barber in the Beatles song. And that was my barber's. <laughs> and and I, I was born a hundred yards from the bus stop, which is also mentioned in the uh, in the song. Yeah. Uh, so when the song came out, I don't have a date for that. Do you have any idea when it was? Well, Late 60, uh, Penny Lane was probably the Penny Lane was probably sixty six or so. Sixty six. There you go. So I was uh, fourteen, and uh, we had a, a sign attached to the wall at the end of the road, which said uh, Penny Lane. Yes. And it kept getting stolen. We were, <laughs> yes, it's a very famous sign. It's a very famous sign. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, you could unscrew it. Mm. And so uh, when the song came out, it was a huge song, wasn't it? Oh, I mean, yeah. I bet we could both still, still hum it and, and probably sing the words. I think uh, I know the words by heart, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And, and so here am I living now on this street. The Beatles have long since gone from Liverpool. Right. But the fascination, the focus upon Liverpool returns with, uh, uh, in, the, in the form of busloads of fans yeah. uh, every day. Including and me, I went there to see the castle. Uh, the, yeah, the cavern. The cavern you went, club. You went to see the cavern. I was in my twenties, you know. I love it. So yeah. we we could have met. Never mind. That would have been, <laughs> would have been cool. Um, so you were in your twenties when you went to Liverpool. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I would have. I would. Yeah, I would have been there. Wow. But that <laughs> is amazing. So you drove up to? Oh no, you flew across. No, I flew. I I flew to London. I took a train to Liverpool because I was a huge Beatle fan, as anyone who'd ever been a musician uh, ha, uh, would yes. have been. Yeah. Uh, how long have we known each other? Uh, since that trip, you came to uh, to that <laughs> CAA party. Absolutely. So. So that was in the eighties. Yeah, I was going to say 86, or perhaps or all that time. And I've never known, I ne there you go, i never known that you flew over to Liverpool until this moment. <laughs> um, now. But, but to, to pick but it back up, to the um, book, back to Liverpool, becoming a, uh, a successful uh, author. You know, became from... uh, uh, famous. And, and, and I, I had it in my head that I wanted to do something of significance, but I had a lot of interests, a lot of disparate interests, if you will. Yeah. And in fact, the writing of the short stories, which was the thing which was to mean most in terms of me finding an audience, was sort of accidental. 
I was writing short stories for fun, showing them to uh, pe people that you either know or know by name, like Pete Atkins, who yeah. uh, you know did a couple of Hellraiser movies and a lot of other wonderful stuff. Doug Bradley, who played Pinhead, of course. Uh, a bunch of people, a little group of maybe six people that I showed these stories to. And somebody at one, and these were handwritten. I didn't type them. I've never typed. I still yes. can't. Type, I know right? that about you. Yes. You know that too well. It's, it's I've worked with you. I've seen it. those yellow pads. Yes. So <laughs> say again. I've seen those yellow pads when I've been say working again? with you. I've seen the yellow yes. pa I, legal I, pads. Yeah. I do I do four I do four drafts of things. So yes. I think there are seventeen thousand handwritten pages <laughs> of, of magica. And it's a form of madness, but but I've been doing it for so long. I can't. I can't imagine it doing it any other way. Sure. Does that make sense? A total sense. Once you Hello? have your, once you've nailed your mojo. <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's a, it's a, uh, it, it works for me. I guess is the best way to put it. Right. Um, and it also attaches in my head to the process of draw, drawing. I write. Mm -hmm. I draw. I draw. I write. It's all interchangeable. Uh, I very seldom create a story or a novel without having drawn the characters first. Mm, Even if they're very simple sketches, I need to know what it all looks like. I will always draw the, and here's a question for you. I, I need to know the geography of a house before I write about it. Mm -hmm. Do you have any uh, parallel obsession or does not? Yeah, if I'm, if, if a location is important to the story I'm doing, I absolutely need to, at least in, in my mind, know I what draw the map is. Yeah. In your mind, okay. I, I make little maps mm. so that, uh, you know, a top view of a house so that I can, oh, okay, the stairs are there. And, you know, it, it, it matters to me only because, and this is something I've said before, I, I, don't, I don't think of myself while I'm writing as a writer. I think of myself as a journalist. Reporting uh -huh. on something I'm seeing. That's a something I'm seeing. Point of view. Yeah. Say, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, it's a fascinating point of view. Uh, yeah. Well, it's happening. In, it's happening in my mind's eye, and so uh, the best thing to do for me, at least, is not think about the words, but think about the images and use the words to describe them. Mm. And. I don't know if this, is a, if this is a useful hint to anybody who's out there listening who's, who's having problems with, with, with the writing process, but uh, taking yourself out of it, this works for me, taking my craftsmanship as, as, as somebody who is shaping hopefully an elegant sentence out of it and simply describing with as much accuracy and economy and elegance as I can Elegance, economy, yeah, uh, yeah, that's about it, um, uh, and accuracy. Uh, the, as long as I get those qualities in the final draft, the first draft and the second draft, which is setting down who's going where and who's killing whom and how much blood there is, uh, it doesn't matter uh, uh, whether I am present in that, whether I'm thinking about the craft of it. What matters is that I'm seeing in my mind's eye something very intense, which my words are then describing. 
I see. Was was it a surprise to you that your first success came as an author as opposed to being a painter or a playwright? Or well, I, not really. Not really. I knew it'd be to do with words because I wasn't painting. If it, if I'd been painting, perhaps I would have been pissed off that I that I wasn't being uh, uh, you know given a gold star for painting. But I wasn't doing that at that time. I was working with words. Uh, I. Uh, being commissioned to do three plays for a, uh, a company, and I wrote those within a couple of years, and that was and those were big plays for character uh, for about cast of about forty people, so they were big plays, uh, and I was pretty much written out in terms of doing my my, my theater stuff, mm -hmm. and so I went to my theater agent uh, Vernon, and I said, I've got these short stories. And I'd had them typed out. Uh, I wish I could remember. Rawhead Rex is one of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Sex, Death, and Starshine was another one. Um, uh, I'll remember. I'll remember. We'll come back to that. Um, okay, uh, but there were five of them. And I, I gave them to Vernon, who was a, 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 a gay man, as, as I am. And, and he... An older gay man, and he was appalled. <laughs> <laughs> he was appalled, and he said, "These are horrible." And I said, "Yeah, they are, aren't they?" <laughs> and, and he 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 was a theater agent, as I say, so he wasn't very familiar with uh, publishing, right. but he did know the people at Victor Gollans who were obviously science fiction publishers, amongst many other things. Mm. Olivia Gollans, who owned the company, ran the company, was a, uh, a woman who wore pearls, if you will. <laughs> and, and I only know this because when she read them, she clutched her pearls and she said, get, get, <laughs> Literally. get this the hell out of here. She was, she was as disgusted as Ronald was. So, uh, well... I just the fearlessness of your prose is something that's striking from the very beginning, because there's always, particularly in the horror genre, there's been a fear of sexuality and your prose is fearless in terms of violence and sexuality and ideas. And, and it, it, it is limitless. There are no self-imposed censorship uh, issues in your work. And that, especially in the 80s, was quite shocking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, firstly, you've just made a connection for me in a way that I've never made before. What I said about being a journalist, mm -hmm. uh, a journalist is honest about what they're seeing. And I've never thought about this before until you just said it. Uh, you know, I'm fearless about what I'm writing. I'm not fearless. I'm just writing it. Yeah. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying, "Gee, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna punch my way out of this envelope." <laughs> you know, that we've been put in. Uh, it, if you will, it, it comes naturally. Yeah, well, now, your work knows no boundaries, and that is one yeah. of the identifying uh, earmarks of, of Clive Barker's work as an artist. You know what I can't figure? Me, I can't imagine why you would pick up the pen with boundaries in your mind. Mm -hmm. I don't see the sense in having a medium in front of you, unlike cinema, for instance, where limitations, censorship limitations are put upon you. Right. If you, if you write something... Uh, this is not entirely true, which is something I'm about to get to, but it was mostly true that they would leave you alone. 
Now, there were some things you could not touch. And I wrote a story called In the Hills and Cities, which was, uh, I think it was in the first three volumes, I'm not sure. And it was, it had two gay men as, as the, as the heroes or the, 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 the protagonists. And they were, in a way, witnesses to the horror rather than of the horror. They weren't killing each other. They were seeing something which I don't want to mention in case somebody wants to read it and it'll spoil yes, it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they make love in a cornfield. Huh, a cornfield. I wonder yes, if there's any connection. There you go. Yeah. Uh, you go. And they make love in a cornfield. And I mentioned the fact that they know the taste of semen on their tongues when they leave the cornfield. And my editor, because by that time, the books of blood were uh, had been purchased for the lovely sum of two thousand pounds for all three, <laughs> uh, for all three, and and so I, I gave them, you know, uh, these stories. And Barbara, who is my editor, she was a lovely lady, said we we absolutely cannot publish this. Uh, this is eighty six, eighty five, eighty six, I think. Yeah. And she was, you have to tell me what it was like over here. I know that in England, uh, the, the, it was, it, homosexuality was not a subject which was much in the, in the news, as it were. Right. Uh, 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 John Gielgud got arrested at one point, and that became big news. Uh, but, uh, you know, there weren't, there weren't a lot of public entertainers who were openly gay. Bowie still uh, still had to come along, you know. Uh, right. Green had to be invented. Uh, there were no gay movies except right. pornographic movies, I suppose, but those weren't shown in Liverpool. So uh, she said, "We we we simply can't publish this. Uh, it's offensive." Oh, and wow. and so I I I've been paid to I actually been paid half of my two thousand pounds as an advance. So I had one thousand pounds in my pocket for fifteen stories. <laughs> and I said, you know what? Uh thank you, Barbara. Here's the thousand pounds back. Um uh-huh. I'll go somewhere else. And I left it. I took I took the stories back and went. And about a week later they called and they said, at least let us censor it. Mm. And I said, Absolutely fucking not. No. 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 I haven't come to you with my my books, my stories, in order for you to tell me what I can and can't do. If you don't like it, that's fine. I've already left. So let's be friends and bye-bye. Uh, eventually, I, I, I wore them down. And they published the story and it won the World Fantasy Award and the British Fantasy Award and so on and so forth. And so, there you go. So you were off we You were off Yeah, but Mick, here's the interesting thing. Uh, years pass and I, I, I give to uh, my publishers, Harper Collins, a book called Sacrament, which has a gay hero, right? Which, and yes. Paul, has the whole thing plays out all over again. And I don't know, uh, I'm just looking around to see if I've got a copy of Sacrament anywhere near with a date on it, but I'm thinking it's, I don't know, 2000? I have it right here. That was the book of yours that brought me to tears because of the dog. Oh, God. God, 
uh, that happens in Cold Heart Canyon too. Yeah, yes. I, is, yeah. I'm big with dogs. Um, <laughs> yes, you do, are. Do you have a date on it? What does it say? Uh, let me see. You know what? I'd have to dig it out of the. Oh, don't, no, no, no worries. Yeah, no worries. but uh, but it was when it was, and but it was recent. Was in the early '90s, I believe. Early '90s. Okay, there you go. So it's a, it's a, it's a. Sacramento was '95. '95. So it's a whole different era, right? Yeah. And and. Uh, What's interesting is I had given them a page size uh, summary of what the novel was going to be, uh, which included the homosexuality of, of the uh, of the hero, Will. Yeah. And uh, uh, so it wasn't as though this was a big surprise to them. And it took me 15 months to write the book. I turned it in and there was silence, which oh. is not a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> Never Even after sport. all of the success you've had in publishing. Even after all the success, exactly. So uh, I get a call eventually. They say uh, the head of the company was flying out to see me, <laughs> <laughs> which was a second bad sign, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, and I happened to like this guy a lot. I thought he was a very nice guy. And uh, he took me to a very fancy restaurant for lunch. And I, I, I <laughs> the third sign. <laughs> you, yeah, it was. You're absolutely right. It was the fact that he didn't eat was a fourth. But the the fact is, I didn't. I didn't figure it out. I, mm. I was so comfortable with the fact that we, that I'd earned my rights, as it were. Uh, I would to, say. Yeah, yeah. Well, to to feel like I was comfortable, you know, in this with these people in this audience. Uh, but he said. Uh, we can't publish this crime. The hero is gay. Hmm. And I said, Jesus, man, it, you know, who, who am I? Look at me. You know, it wasn't a big secret to him. It wasn't a big secret to anybody. No. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I, so I was deeply disappointed. And I said, look, I, uh, I'll give you, I think it was 350000 or something like that, dollars. I said, I'll give it you back, no problem. And I will find another audience, another uh, another uh, publisher. Yeah. And he said, "Well, wait, 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 wait." He <laughs> said, I, "I, we, we've, we've worked out what to do." And I said, "Okay, what are we going to do?" And he said, "Well, every, every time he 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 has a, a scene with a he, you just put an S on the beginning of the he, and it becomes a she." I can't believe the UK. I would have thought was much more progressive. No, this is the U. This was the US. I was. Oh, the US publisher. Uh, no, I, I, yes, that makes. Sense. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Sense. yeah. So he 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 flew out, and he actually said uh, he flew out from New York and said uh, just to tell me that uh, all I need to do was turn the guys into girls, oh. and all would be fine. Oh. Now the book is about. Uh, uh, the villains of the book, or yeah, the villains uh, are what they call the killer of last things. Uh, they kill the last mating pair of any uh, species which is going to extinction, an issue which has become more and more urgent. Yes. Uh, you know, 26 years on, uh, I, I think the book was, nobody seemed very interested in that part of the book when I published, <laughs> but I, uh, you know, you know how obsessive I am about animals, and and mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm in a house with a lot of animals right now, and and uh, was 
two dogs for the parrot in the room I'm sitting in. And, uh, and it's, it's, it was, it was a book, which was about the issue of animals being driven to extinction, but it was also about human beings who were also being driven to extinction. And that was any minority. Right. Right. So there was, as far as I was concerned, as being a member of one of those minorities, uh, uh, and having uh, had a lover murdered, which is one of the reasons why I came over here yeah. uh, to escape that fact. Uh, to not have the freedom to speak about your experience well, as a human yeah. being. Just exactly. because of your sexual orientation well, is kind of shocking to me. I mean, I've not been confronted with that as a heterosexual male, but, but you know, it's certainly uh, just you telling me right now is shocking uh, to me. Have you ever been censored me? Oh, yeah. But then Thank most you. of my work has been as a filmmaker rather okay, than yeah, yeah. No, in books in, in your case. Yeah. You're as a writer, no, because I've never really been with one of the major publishers you've been with. My books have been with relatively smaller press. So that's given me more freedom in, in the fiction that I've written. So nobody has ever come to uh, your fiction and said, uh, you know, even with a word or two, change that. No. No. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, but I also don't sell books in the millions, my friend. <laughs> no, no, but 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 the the, the the theme was that thematically, yeah, sacrament was about the loss of things. Yeah. Well, the the loss is palpable when uh, when the dog has to be put to sleep. It is one of the most heartbreaking and sob-inducing things that I've ever read. <laughs> Charlie, yeah. we just lost Charlie. Uh, 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 very close to our hearts. And uh, I have to put a, a footnote here, which is just lovely. I saw on the news two or three days ago that Major, who is Biden, one of Biden's two dogs, is right. the first pound dog ever to be in the White House. Isn't that great? Isn't that awesome? I, I love, love that. that. I love that. And such a beautiful dog, too. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I sorry, silly footnote, but I, I you know No the, no, I, I love it. Yeah, I do too. It seems to me it seems to me it's symbolic in some way of of, of the fact that having been a palace for a pretended king yeah. uh in Trump's time, uh Biden is letting in the pound dogs. <laughs> yeah. Nobody needs to let the dogs out. Yeah. Exactly right. And I you know, it was interesting. Because once Trump was asked, well, when are you going to get a dog? And he said, oh, please, can you see me with a dog? <laughs> I think he's the only president who didn't have one. I think that was observed in the, in the, in the piece, yes. Yeah. Uh, that uh, almost every pre president was identified with a dog or even dogs, plural. Yeah. 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 Uh, but he, sorry, go on. No, no, just one thing I wanted to get to was I've always... You and Stephen King come at horror from completely opposite ends. And yep. it's interesting to me, Steve will take a story and set it in your neighborhood with people you're familiar with, and then take one slight step to the left into the other natural. Yes. Whereas you build worlds that are completely of your imagination and make them real and believable. And then put somebody who might be you, the reader, 
or your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend into that world. Yeah, 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 exactly. And make it real, even though it is completely of your own device. Thank you. Thank you. That means a huge amount. We haven't had this conversation ever. It's interesting that we're having these, these conversations on in a public forum, but it's lovely. Yeah, yeah um, I love that. It's lovely. The, the, for me, the, the, the two things happened to me when I was a kid the, in my imagination. I was, the, the, the entertainment in the Barker household was get Clyde to come down and tell the guests about his secret friends. Oh, nice. And I could witter on endlessly about my secret friends uh, who I saw around me all the time and who I could describe in great detail and could even take people to their locations in the house. Mm. And uh, we lived in a terraced house. It wasn't a very big house, but it was a, it was a very warm and loving house and it was complicated in its layout. So... And I literally did this to a somewhat surprised guests. You know, as a four or five-year-old, I would climb the top of the stairs and there were two places at the top of the stairs where two friends of mine lived. Now, <laughs> uh, you know, lots of kids have overactive imaginations and I was just <laughs> one of them. Um, but for me, they were a protection. I was a, uh, it felt, I've always felt like an outsider, not in a bad way, not in a whiny way, not in a woe is me way. No, I think but, most creative people are outside. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think if if you walk down the street with your hair, the, the color it is and the length that it is, you have immediately said, I am not of you. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid right? that's probably true. Yes. Ah, no, not a, don't be afraid of that at all. <laughs> I, I wave my freak flag. Yeah. There you go. Proudly. Cynthia <laughs> is Cynthia is so beautiful and so elegant. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, uh, tall and imposing. She uh, is and, tall. She's five foot ten. Yeah. Yeah, and that you know, you, Cynthia is one scene never forgot. Right. That's true. I and, agree with you more. And the same is how long have you guys been married? Thirty-nine years. Yeah. Gosh. Shortly it'll be thirty-nine years. You 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 had colored hair back then. <laughs> That's right. My hair was short and brown when uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. But you know, the two of you are an incredibly outsider pair. You 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 establish from the moment from a glance that you are not of this earth, you know? <laughs> Hopefully in a positive sense. <laughs> always in a positive Coming always. from me, that's always in a positive sense, Absolutely. Right? My favorite uh, outsider, yeah. There you go. <laughs> and so, and, and let's look at that outsider tradition, shall we, just for a moment? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 Colin Wilson uh, uh, wrote a wonderful book called The Outsider. It was the first book he published. Mm. And he was talking about the art, uh, artists the, in the European tradition who were utter outsiders, like uh, Van Gogh, for instance, an utter outsider. Uh, uh, Van Gogh ne never paint, never sold a picture in his life, uh, yeah. except to his brother, you know, who was doing it to put money into his pocket. Right. Uh, obviously, he had a very troubled life, committed suicide, and cut off his ear and gave it to a prostitute. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a terrible life. He was deeply, deeply 
unhappy all through his life. Yeah. And we look at his paintings now, and that outsider who was largely despised uh, by his culture, by even in many cases by his friends, he moved in with Paul Gauguin, uh, to, so they'd be painters together. Gauguin couldn't stand him, he was away, he was out of there. <laughs> so I think Van Gogh was lonely, probably very lonely. And I think that is the, that is the, the issue with a lot of outsiders, with a lot of artists. And that's why it's wonderful that you and Cynthia have been together for 39 years, because you're not lonely, you're with each other. Yeah. That's why I, I've got Roman in my life. You know, we are both outsiders too. And, uh, and I count in, 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 in that party of, of, of supporters, as it were, my animals. Yeah, you know, of course. Uh, Malingo, like my parrot, who's sitting four feet from me and hasn't <laughs> said a word yet, which is good. Um, you know, she's a yellow-headed Amazon. She's gorgeous. She's wonderful. Mm. And uh, she's with me 24-7. Yeah. Uh, I've been sick for a long while, as you know, and I haven't been able to leave this room for two years. I wasn't able to leave this room. And she was there all the time. And twice a day, she will get up uh, down from her perch. She's never in a cage, locked in a cage. She's always free and walk over to me, uh. <laughs> which is, I don't know, 10 feet probably. She then gets right down by my feet. I will not have heard her. She just comes <laughs> over and silently and she makes the tiniest sound, uh. like a, a tiniest little, I'm here. Yes, which, she loves you. You know? Yeah. And then she climbs on my finger. And yesterday she did the most adorable thing. She fell asleep on my finger. Oh, it was so cool. For 20 minutes she's, she sat on my finger and, and, uh, and dozed. Um, now so listen to this beautiful conversation from someone who has written the most bloodthirsty, most <laughs> bloodletting, violent, sexually perverse, uh, outrageous films and books of all time. But well, I find that to be a trademark of most of the people in the genre. They have the softest exactly hearts. Yes. yes. And I think, uh, I think the, how do we say this? I think uh, most people who write about pain and suffering are super, super sensitive to it. Yeah. And, and have often been in their lives through a lot of pain and suffering. It's true. Uh, I cannot watch anything happen. I'm a vegetarian almost until the doctor says you need to eat some chicken chum. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I don't like doing that. Yeah, uh, I'm a vegan for the same reason. I love it. And, and I, I think if anybody, I've always said this, I say the, the most passionate of meat eaters could, I could take them into a slaughterhouse and I guarantee that many of them would walk out deciding they were not going to eat any more meat. Absolutely. Well, you know, you touched on it, but you had a very severe health situation yeah. that uh, you were having dental surgery. Yeah. You went into a coma and it really rendered you out of commission for almost six years. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to this day, I'm still, I mean, I haven't left this room today. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it makes you, uh, I woke up after a long coma and, and uh, 
thought I was being uh, set upon by aliens. Uh, uh, imagine you you go into a coma. You, I'm doing my teeth. It's 10 o'clock at night. I've been to the dentist that day. I'm doing my teeth. And that's all I remember. Oh, okay. And then some many days later, uh, uh, the the screen of the of the, the screen of my eyes lights up, and I start to see things. And what I see is people with masks on, and people I don't know. And I was not breathing for myself. They had a you know a, a breathing apparatus down my esophagus. Right. You were intubated, yeah. Exactly, and they wanted to take it out, and. Uh, I don't want to go into the grisly details, but you know, that's not a very pleasant thing. No. Uh, I was unconscious when it went in, so I didn't know about it. Now I wanted, they wanted to take it out and I wasn't about to give it up mm. because they were aliens. Oh, wow. <laughs> they were torturing me. Why were you doing this to me? And there wasn't anybody in the room I knew. So all I had was these strangers weirdly dressed in a room I had no knowledge of uh, trying to do something that seemed to be affecting my innards, you know, because when you're pulling a tube that's uh, 18 inches down into your belly or your lungs rather, uh, and they start to pull it out, it feels like they're turning you inside out. And uh, eventually the doctor said, if you don't let this go, I will open your throat. Oh, wow. Now he, he meant that benignly. <laughs> right, but it didn't sound like that. It didn't like sound a... <laughs> like benign. Yeah. But, I, but I eventually, after I think some 45 minutes of struggling, released the thing. And, and uh, half a day later, I was fully conscious. But comatose states are, don't let you go easily. It's yeah. not like, uh, you know, in movies, perhaps, you see somebody comatose one moment and, and awake the next. And boy, that was a good sleep. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not. It's not like that, you know. Not what it's, it's like. Hmm. No, uh, a coma has its claws in you, and even though it might relax them a little, it doesn't relax them entirely for a long time. Well, it kept you in its claws for six years. You were unable yeah. to work. You you weren't yeah. writing, and yeah. but the good news is you've written two novels and a book of poetry since then. Yeah, no, I, you're it, doing I, great, and you're working I, on some stuff together. Yeah, we we we're working on a lot together, and I uh, I am uh, you know I'm back. I feel as though it's been a long waking, but then it was a long sleep. And, yeah. and I also feel as though, in a way, I've been given not just a, a, a second chance, but a, a new energy, a new imaginative energy. Mm, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, you know, Maybe I needed to re relax a little bit. I don't know. But it, <laughs> it, felt, it, it felt to me as though as I began to awaken to what I'd done, and this is weird because a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff which I didn't realize I had written. When I came back from the, uh, these are things which were not published, but I had written and finished. Wow. And so there's, uh, there's a, uh, I don't know, 1,300-page uh, handwritten uh, novel here, uh, wow. which has no title, but I wrote before the coma, obviously. 
um, is new. I mean, it's new to me. It's a sort of it's kind of discovery in a way. It's a it's a it's a wonderful uh it's it's a whole new day. Well, I'm thrilled to look forward to new books by Clive Barker and new projects Thank you, by Clive Barker. I mean, that's great. You know, I, I don't want to disappoint the audience by not talking about the films that were and were not made some of them with you and me and others. I mean, I had written a screenplay for In the Flesh for Warner Brothers that I was going to direct. Um, we worked together on a pilot. The first thing we wrote together was Spirit City USA. Which I still love. Uh, it was a, a wonderful pilot for a TV series. Yep. We did a couple of stories on Masters of Horror. Um, but uh, And now you know, we have, let's talk about what we, we've got coming. We've got Clive Marcus Theater of Blood. Yes, that's very exciting. It's an anthology of all new stories um, of your device, and I will be producing with you. Absolutely. And And we're doing them all in Britain. We're going back to the country that produced Frankenstein and and Jekyll and Hyde and Dracula. And I say country, by that I mean Britain. Uh, You know, uh, Dracula was written by an Irishman. Jack Van Heisen by a Scotsman, um, and and uh, Mary Shelley, of course, was 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 English. And one note to bring this conversation full circle: we were talking about Wimpole Street, the house where I, the Georgian house I I, I owned, absolutely opposite was uh, the house where the Barretts of Wimpole Street lived. There's a yes. movie called The Barretts of Wimpole Street. Yeah, the, you know the you know you know the uh, the poet. Robert Browning mm-hmm. uh, uh, seduced the daughter of the house, uh, uh, who became his wife, and so directly opposite, they have a blue plaque on the houses which have contained luminaries. You know, in 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 Britain, right. yes. London, yeah, the blue plaque houses. So there's right. a blue plaque beside that, and there's a blue plaque on the house next door to me. I was at number thirty six, because Dali. Salvador Dali had lived there for a period with wow. his with his uh, with his uh, uh, patron uh, Edward James. Uh, he devised the, the the very famous sofa, which looks like Mae West's lips. Oh yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it was. I was surrounded by the ghosts of artists, and when I wrote *A Magica*, which is the last book I wrote in England, uh, my then boyfriend had gone to America ahead of me to this house and left me uh, deliberately as planned to finish a magic uh, in the Wimpole Street house, which is five stories. So I was one, one man in five stories of Georgian house yes. at Christmas and the snow came down and I got to write the last, I don't know, maybe 300 pages of a magic uh, all on my own for four and a half months in this empty Georgian house. It was, uh, and I, I just remember sitting at the door at the at my desk, looking out the window and seeing the rain, the snow uh, uh, drifting down lazily on Christmas Day, and feeling like this was the perfect place to be to say goodbye to an epic, wow. which is what you know. It was uh, so. If there is a falling note in. In, in the text at the end of uh, a magica in which they're all making their plans for the future, but also saying goodbye to something at the same moment. 
It's because I was doing that. I was saying goodbye to London. That's stunning. Um, You know, the question I'm asked most about is is the mummy. We were... We were working on this. Uh, you wrote the story. I wrote the screenplay with you, and you were going yeah. to direct it. Yeah. And it never happened. You know, they never even told us anything after we turned in the script. They Nothing. never said, no, we're not going to do it. It so no. blew their minds. It was, yeah. What do you expect? Uh, tell, 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 tell everybody why it blew their minds. Tell well, them about it. A little no. punchline. I'd much rather you tell it because okay. this was your story and let them know how it was different from the usual mummy in that it was uh, mostly modern day and set in Beverly Hills. Absolutely. <laughs> it was modern day. And, and, but it also had the first uh, uh, sex Trans- gender change, right? Yes, transsexual. So, transsexual. So this is, what year is this, Nick? That had to be uh, 89 or so. Okay, so we were ahead of the curve. We can write oh, yeah. say <laughs> so, Well, you were always there. You just... There you go. Yeah. So, there is a, so there is a boy born, a boy child born at the beginning of the narrative who is obviously significant in the narrative but does not appear as an adult later on. We cut 20 years and there's no sign of this guy, apparently. Nice. There is a wonderfully strange, mysterious woman who is part of the narrative, very important part of the narrative. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say too much because we're going to make this one day. I, uh, I hope so. I hope so too. Uh, we should talk to Netflix. The, uh, the, the, the little boy uh, who is born at the beginning of the narrative has become this exquisite woman. Yes. And uh, a major part of a modern day narrative about the money. And, it, you know, this is our naivety, I think. Yes. How could we ever have thought in 1989 when we turned this in that they would say, oh, great. I never this did. <laughs> I never. I thought they're never going to make this movie. Okay. I'm I having one hell of a time. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that we had, that we had. Yeah. But you know, I did, and I think I've always had a a, a slightly naive, <laughs> naive attitude to people who to the money, if you will, the suits. Um, it can serve you well that naivete sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it means I go into things whether or not. You know, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to, and maybe, you know, uh, maybe a, a circle is turned and eventually what seemed impossible when I wrote Sacrament now mm. becomes plausible. Maybe Sacrament will be a, a movie now. Yeah. Uh, maybe be. our money with its, you know, it's, it's boy who becomes a girl uh, and a major part of the narrative can be a movie. And uh, in addition to that, yeah. underneath Beverly Hills, there was unearthed a pyramid. From yeah, the well, common. <laughs> and I wanted to, I, I wanted to make sure that we used the, 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 the secret life of every place. Yeah. Uh, it turns out, it turns out the, 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 town, the house I'm living in right now was built by a man called Ronald Coleman, who was an actor, the star of Lost Horizon. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. So he built he built this house and in the twenties, I think, and it was the first house in this canyon. 
And so it has history and it has, you know, the original plaster work and all that stuff. And I, as you know, because you've seen it, on, I reconstructed it pretty much about the way it was. No, it's beautiful. Yeah. And I, I like to honor the past because we don't, we know nothing about the secrets. Yeah. Uh, you know, that are hidden in our world, sometimes hidden in, in, in plain sight. And so one of the things, and we'll talk about this soon off the air, uh, but I've got to, I've got 11 cities, 11 locations, I should say, they're not all cities, in England, in England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland for our theater of blood. Mm -hmm. And I started to, to look into their histories my Lord, the number of stories that have never been told. Mm. Uh, which well, especially become, through the filter of Clive Barker. That's the well, key. yeah. I mean, the, yes. I had a. I, I don't know. We don't have much time. I realize, but let me just. Well, we you, don't have a hard out, so we. There you go. Okay, so yeah. that sounds very pornographic, but okay. <laughs> the, the, the I was I used to t teach playwriting, and one of my one of my pupils was this lovely young lady called Rose. And I asked her what her job was one time after the, the, uh, the lesson. And she said, she was one of those people that you saw in hazmat uh, jackets, you know, the white hazmat jackets with, right. with, with breathers on. And I said, well, what did you do? She said, we went into plague, we go into plague pits. Oh my God. And I said, well, wait, 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 how many plague pits are there? <laughs> and she said, in London, which is where we were. Uh, uh, every few months, we are knocking down a building, ex 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 uh, extracting uh, earth from uh, a, a problematic pipe or whatever, and we find things that have been you know, buried and, and were not realized to be there. And one of the most common things is plague pits. Oh. Blackheath, which is a Blackheath, which is a, a a part of South London, stands for Black Plague Heath. Oh wow! Well, I know there are movies like Raw Meat where they're building, <laughs> constructing the tube, right. uh, constantly discovering plague pits during the course. <laughs> Absolutely, the, 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 well, the tube is another thing. Uh, the tube <laughs> is one of our the tube is one of our sites. To, to yes, write it. Yes, yes. Because uh, it was an extraordinary thing. But uh, what was fascinating to me was the most gentle suite of ladies, Rose, was telling me that her daily job <laughs> was to get into a hazmat jacket or suit rather and investigate the most morbid, the most, the darkest. I wrote a story called The Life of Death, which is about this. Right. And yeah, she described to me how at the front of the, uh, oh, let me do it the other way, at the back of a pit, at the furthest part of a pit, people would be buried in a very orderly fashion with, in coffins and, and uh, probably put to rest with all the appropriate rites and prayers and so on. And the closer you got to the door, as it were, the more panic it was. Yeah. Because the oh. plague was taking a greater and greater grip. Wow. Now, what are we what are we watching in our culture right now? We're watching that. We are. The, we're watching. We're watching Brazil. Uh, you know, uh, hire uh, uh, you know freezer vans to put bodies in. Yeah. 
Uh, so, and this is, this is, I suppose, more about history that it's circular, that everything comes around. Everything. The happy and the sad. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Well, it, it, you know, it's something we, sh we should go and explore again. Yeah, and I, I think I don't want to, I don't want to go without you talking know. about your experience in the film world because okay. transitioning from a novelist or from an author into a <laughs> filmmaker, they yeah. are the the opposite job. One is sitting by yourself in a room with a keyboard. The yes. other is being in the middle of the maelstrom of a hundred people, actors, crew, thousand questions a minute, all of that stuff. Uh, you had some joy and you had some disappointment with Hollywood and the filmmaking process. Yeah. Tell, tell me your overall thoughts about being a well, filmmaker. I'm still here. And I, I, I got a movie or two in me yet, I think. Uh, Hellraiser, you know, I, you, the, the difference is, is I think that um, movie making is an orgy and writing is masturbation. It's, <laughs> uh, it's as simple as that. But the, 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 <laughs> the horrors of movie making are are about power, aren't they? They're about people who don't have the the passion that you or I have for making movies, uh, who really only have the passion for money, who want to change what we're doing because they think the way they want to make it will make more money. And uh, that's a source of sadness and irritation to me, as I'm sure it is to you. Yeah. Uh, uh, we've both of us uh, got away with a lot more than uh, perhaps we might have done. I made Hellraiser for a very, very small amount of money. So I was 31. I'd never directed a picture before. I knew pr pretty much nothing. But I'd been in theater and directed in theater. So I was, I was, I was okay with that part. And you know, you're surrounded by wonderfully talented men and women who who have done this, who have taken uh, 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 taken years to learn their craft. I hadn't. I was just doing it by the seat of my pants. Uh, Nightbreed, which was the next picture I made, uh, was cut to ribbons by the company that, that made it, uh, but was then reconstructed. So there's now a director's cut, which is pretty much as I intended. And... Uh, uh, there was an big 11, difference. a big difference, a big yeah. difference. And uh, there was 11 minutes missing from Lord of Illusions, which was also put back eventually. You know, the, the, the fight you have, and I've had it on a literary level as well as a, a cinematic level, as I've explained with the, with the gay content, there's always people who are always trying to make it their way. Right. And... Uh, well, even I, with your first time out with Hellraiser, you yeah. made the movie you wanted to make, but they had to replace all the English accents with American ones. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, there's always fiddles out there. Uh, yeah. However, I want to, my, my mom, my beloved uh, 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 mom who passed away a little while ago, uh, I was too sick to go to her funeral, but mm. I got a recording of the funeral. And that's her coffin was taken out they had decided to play my way oh my god which was absolutely perfect for my mother wow my mother uh <laughs> did it her way and uh i i learned a lot from my mom and and uh she she was a willful willful but very civil lady yeah and i've always thought 
if if I give it my best and do it my way, even if it's wrong, at least it was mine. And that's the uh, the philosophy, if you will. William Blake, the, the poet mystic of England, says, "Make your own laws, or be a slave to another man's." Wow! I cannot think of a better way to go out than that. There you go, my friend. I love you, Mick. I love you, Clive. Thank you Take so care. much for this. And I can't wait to get together and start working out our theater of blood. And give a hug and a kiss to Cynthia for me, will you please? You got it. Okay. Take care, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, Clive. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.